Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ here in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Sunday morning Bible class. We're podcasting a Bible study every Sunday morning for those who cannot be with us in person. Now, we know that there are some even in the Omaha area who cannot be with us for one reason or another in person at the church building. And we know that there are people across the country and literally around the world who want to be in Bible study. But obviously, because of where they live, they cannot be with us in person either. So we're thankful to have the ability and the means and the opportunity to be able to teach God's Word on such a widespread basis through the medium of the Internet and by means of these podcasts. We're thankful you're there, and we're thankful that we're here to help you study God's Word to learn more fully, more accurately what it really teaches, and thereby to grow in your faith And our prayer is to come closer to God and ultimately to be together in heaven. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. So our being together, studying God's word, is crucial for the development and the growth and the strengthening of our faith and for our relationship with God. We encourage you to share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means. And also, tell people to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com. Click on the podcast button, sign up for our podcasting. It's free. It always will be free. And when you sign up, you will automatically receive to your smartphone or computer or whatever smart device you choose all of our podcast Bible studies, and you'll receive a whole lot of Bible teaching material on a daily basis. So take advantage of it yourself and tell others to do so as well. Now, if you're in the Omaha area, come and see us in person. Check us out. Get to know us. Let us get to know you. Study God's Word with us. Worship God with us and grow spiritually with us at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ. 3606 North 108th Street, 3606 North 108th Street, right here in Omaha. Bible classes begin at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, followed by worship at 10.30. Sunday evenings, we come back together for another period of worship and Bible study at 6 o'clock each Sunday evening, and midweek Bible classes each Wednesday evening at 6.30. You're welcome to any and all of these services. We hope to see you soon. We're going to get back into our study from the book of Judges. Now, we've been studying through, first, the creation account, going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and then the early history of mankind, beginning with chapter 3, well, I guess actually going back to chapter, you could say chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, and then chapter 2, it kind of repeats the uh, creation of mankind. It brings man and woman together. And then chapter 3, then we see Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, from chapter 3 on, then we're looking at the early history of the human race as it develops. And ultimately, by chapter 6, It is so wicked, so evil, so sinful that God cleanses the earth from humanity and from all of the living animals that he has placed upon the earth through the flood in Noah's day. Noah and his family were the exceptions. They were spared by God, and the animals that God sent into the ark, which he instructed Noah to build, they were saved also, and the earth then was replenished after the flood of human life and animal life. But then we 
saw where God in Genesis chapter 12 chose Abraham to be the forefather of the bloodline that would lead to the growth, the development of the nation of Israel. And that nation then would be the bloodline through which the Savior would come into the world in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we see Israel's development while they're living within the boundaries of Egypt. We see Pharaoh come along after they've been there about 400 years, and they've grown into a mighty multitude of people, a million or maybe three million strong. And that Pharaoh then puts them in basically in bondage, basically makes slaves out of them. They're in servitude to, uh, to that Pharaoh. And they cry out to God in prayer, and God sends Moses to lead them out of bondage from Egypt and to the promised land. Now, that, that particular process, once they leave the borders of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, and then they spend about 40 years in the wilderness until they grow in their faith. And, and the entire adult generations die out during those 40 years because of their weak faith in God. And then God leads their children and grandchildren into the promised land. God fights battle after battle after battle before them and, and, and blesses them with victory. And ultimately, it comes to the point where their new leader, Joshua, who has led them into the promised land after Moses died on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, just across the river from the promised land, Joshua, he gets older and he steps aside. They don't quite finish driving out or destroying all of the idol-worshiping peoples of that land, and that, as God had prophesied, foretold would happen if they did not drive them all out or destroy them all. They became thorns in their side. They became, they became influences that led the people of Israel into the worship of idols themselves, and thereby into unfaithfulness before God. Now, they still said, we believe in God. They still would worship God to some degree, but they were worshiping idols and seeing those idols as gods as well, lowercase g. An idol is, as I keep saying, nothing. It is an inanimate object. It is a piece of wood or a piece of stone or a piece of metal that has been fashioned into some kind of image. And then people, after they fashion it, after they manufacture it, <laughs> and the scriptures actually say this, then they drop down on their knees and they pray to it. Now, talk about, talk about absurdity, but that is the reality of the worship of idols. So, God then allowed those peoples, those idol-worshiping peoples that, that the Israelites had allowed to stay in the land, they became stronger and some of the nations around them, I believe, God used to bring judgment upon Israel. And so that's where we're at in the period of the judges. It's interesting when we looked at chapter 2 in the judges that we saw a text of Scripture where it talked about how the people of Israel, they remained faithful to God during the days of Joshua, their leader and during the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But then, after those elders had died out, there arose a new generation, in other words, children, grandchildren, there arose a new generation 
the text says, who did not know God and did not know the signs and the wonders, the miracles that he had performed for their fathers, their, well, their parents and grandparents in the wilderness. How sad. And so I think we're to conclude that the parents and grandparents apparently did not do enough diligence in teaching their children and their grandchildren of that new generation about God. Now, it's easy to point fingers, though, isn't it? And remember, there's always three fingers pointing back at you when you're pointing one finger at somebody else. Don't we see that today as well? How many times do we see a faithful family, a mother and a father, and they're at church services every Sunday, every Sunday. They're at church services. They're diligent. But then their children grow up, and they may become somewhat weaker in their faith, and maybe then their children grow up, and they don't go to church at all, or very little at least, and they certainly do not live a faithful life. Well, what happened along the way? Well, sometimes it's just the generation or two removed from the parents who were faithful, diligent Christians, or a lot of times I think it's the idea, okay, mom and dad, they were there, but maybe maybe they weren't as dedicated and committed to being Christians as their appearance was. They appeared to be dedicated and committed, but maybe they maybe they weren't. Maybe they they showed up on the scene, so to speak, but maybe they didn't really teach their children at home that much about God. And so the children grew up not knowing that much about the Bible, not knowing that much about God's Word, not, not really understanding the depth of what dedication and commitment and faithfulness is supposed to be. And so they stray away. They become unfaithful. Well, so we can see the modern-day application to what possibly took place in that period of the, of the history of Israel where the youth grew up and did not know God. They did not have that same connection that their parents and grandparents had, and they became unfaithful. Well, so God began, and this is the this is the the understanding of the book of Judges. God began raising up leaders to basically deliver the Israelites, and sometimes it might be a tribe or two or three, or sometimes it might be more than that among the people of Israel, from their oppressors, those peoples who were idol worshipers who, whom God had used to discipline his people, the Israelites. Those nations around them that basically conquered and put them into subjection, under subjection. And so the people then would come to a point after maybe 20, 30, 40 years, they might cry to God in, in, in prayer and say, please deliver us. They, they come, they kind of realize, you know, they've made big mistakes, and so they're praying for God's deliverance. He raises up 
a leader whom is identified as a judge, and that judge then draws the people together and leads them in victory over their oppressors. And so then they stay faithful, basically faithful at least, for another period of time, maybe another 20, 30, 40 years. But then what happens again? Another generation comes along. They weren't alive during that time when their parents, grandparents were under subjection of those foreign idol-worshiping people, and so they don't really understand, they don't understand the danger, and so they are lured back into unfaithfulness before God themselves. We see that reality today. It doesn't necessarily take the form of idol worship, idolatry, but it takes the form of, of sinfulness, immorality, un, unfaithfulness to God. We see that happening all around us. Just think about some of the things that we're seeing going on in the world right now and how our younger generations, and I'm not talking about kids, I'm talking about anywhere from you know 18 years old on up into their mid, maybe to late 40s, who were not around during the period of the Cold War They were not around during the time when communist regimes were so powerful and domineering and starting to dominate other countries. And so they don't know those dangers. They don't recognize some of those totalitarian governments for what they are and what they ultimately do. And they have some kind of philosophical mindset that, well, that's not a bad thing there. You know, those are pretty good places. They don't understand the tyranny that ultimately results. And so they're living in a state of ignorance to a great extent and not realizing it. And so that's kind of on a physical plane, kind of a, a reflection of what Israel was going through on a spiritual level during this period of the judges. Well, chapter 7, we, get, we begin reading with verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morech. Now remember, Gideon was chosen by God to be a judge, to lead the people out of bondage of one of their oppressors. Gideon, you know, he was reluctant, you know, to to fill this role, but God chose him anyway. Going back to chapter 6 and verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So the Midianites had, had overtaken at least much of, his, uh, much of the Israelites by this time. Gideon was chosen by God to become a judge and lead the people in victory over the Midianites and basically kick them out, you know, and, and uh, deliver the, the people of Israel from their, their oppression. And Gideon asked for some signs having to do with a, a, a fleece of, of wool, you know. And one, one occasion he said, you know, okay, let 
the dew fall upon the ground, but let the fleece be the fleece of wool be be uh, dry. And God responded and let him know, because Gideon's saying, if you really want me to do this, if you're really behind us, if that's what I'm going to understand, show me the sign. And God did that. And then Gideon repeated, but in reverse order, he said, okay, let the fleece become wet with dew and all the ground around it be dry. And God did that as well. So then we saw in chapter 6, beginning with verse 28, where, where Gideon destroyed the altar that was set up to worship the idol Baal. Now, chapter 7, verse 1, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, that, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morech, the valley. Now, again, they're drawing battle lines is what we're to understand here. There's going to be a big battle. And wars fought in that part of the world during that period of, 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 of historical uh, you know, history. They're not, they were not like wars pretty much the way we understand wars today that go on for years. But rather, there would be one huge cataclysmic battle or maybe two, and that was the end of the war, because one side would be utterly defeated or destroyed in those battles. They'd throw everything into it, and then it would be over. In verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. They're too many for me to give the, uh, to give the Midianites into their hands. Let Israel claim glory for itself against me, or rather, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God looks at all the multitude of, of warriors that he had gathered to fight the Midianites, and God said, nah, too many, too many. I don't, want, I don't want the people of Israel to think they did it on their own when I give them victory over their oppressors, the Midianites in this battle coming up. So, verse 3, God told Gideon, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So Gideon had 32,000 soldiers, basically, in his army to go against the Midianites. God said, Tell everybody, whoever's afraid, go home. 22,000 left. You're talking about over two-thirds of the army. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Now, I wonder what was going through Gideon's mind at this time. Lord, two-thirds of the army, to over two-thirds of the army has already left by your instruction. You want me to thin it out even some more? Do you, see, do you see how many of those enemy soldiers there are over there? You want us to reduce our numbers even more? You see, Gideon and the Israelites needed to come to understand the victory is from God, not from their own hands. So people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you 
the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. Hmm. If I understand the description there, the descriptive text, God is telling Gideon, anyone who just basically falls down on their belly and, and, and puts their face in the water and just laps up the water with their tongue as a dog would do, you set them apart. Those who drop down on their knees and cup their hands to pull some water up to their mouth while still looking out, perhaps, still being able to see across the water, around the area, maybe being alert on guard, you set those apart to themselves. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Now, there were 32,000 soldiers in Gideon's army. Then there were 10,000. Now there's 300. But again, Gideon and the rest of the people needed to understand God gives you the victory. It's not going to be totally by your power. You're going to still have to fight the battle, but God's going to give you the victory. And you need to understand that. So, verse 8, so the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I wonder what Gideon was thinking now. <laughs> it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Notice the past tense of the word delivered, as though it had already happened. God's saying, I've already given you the victory. It's going to happen. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, that is Gideon went, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. I think undoubtedly, even when Gideon had those 32,000 original warriors in his army, they were still vastly outnumbered by the enemy. But now he only has 300, and the enemy is as numerous as locusts, their camels without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come there, uh, had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley, bread, tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell 
so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Now his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped and returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole camp ran and cried out and fled. Now understand, there were only 300 men, but they had surrounded the camp. It was darkness and they had torches, they had, they had horns to blow, and they had uh, pitchers that they broke. And so it produced something of a chaotic scene. Again, it was dark. The people in the camp, the enemy, the Amalekites and the Midianites and all the people of the east, they, they could not see clearly that there were only 300 men. They saw that there were men all around them. They saw torches all around them. They were hearing trumpets blowing all around them. They were hearing warriors crying out all around them, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they were hearing pitchers break on the ground. Interesting, interesting. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's, we're talking about the enemy here. We're talking about the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the East. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerira, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. And so there was chaos in the enemy camp. They, they, again, in darkness, they started fighting one another, thinking they were the enemy, the Israelites. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places. In other words, did not allow the, 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 the Midianites and the Amalekites and the men of the east to be able to water themselves, to be able to gain water for themselves or water their animals. 
Verse 25, and they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed an Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Well, the battle text continues into the next chapter, but we're going to stop here. You see, God was giving them the victory. 32,000 soldiers against (laughs) basically innumerable odds, innumerable numbers against them. Remember how even their camels of the Midianites, Amalekites, and the men of the east were described as being, you know, without number? Is that what they said? And as the sand of the seashore in number? Well, 32,000 on the side of Gideon? Too many, God said. Send everybody who's afraid home. 22,000 left. 10,000 left. Again, vastly outnumbered by the enemy. God said still too many. I'm going to tell you, I want you to select just whom I tell you to select. Turned out to be just 300. But God told them what to do. And Gideon and those 300 were faithful to God, trusted God, and God gave them the victory over a massive army that, was, that stood against them initially. We'll look further next time into chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, truly, you are all-powerful. You are omnipotent. There is nothing that is impossible for you, Father. And you are also gracious and merciful and loving and kind. But you are also a God of judgment. Guide us to always stand on your side, Father and be faithful to you, and thereby receive the blessings that you have in store for us. Please, we pray, Father, protect us against our enemies. Please protect us and guide us to be the shining lights of your way, your truth, your word, to help even our enemies see the better way. And thereby, help us to glorify you continually through our lives. Please guide us in this, Father. Strengthen us and sustain us, we pray. Please forgive us, gracious Father, and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.